Welcome back, campers. That's Caitlin. And that's Genevieve. And today, four days before Christmas, we are gifting you the telling of a haunting holiday mystery. On Christmas Eve 1945, in Fayetteville, West Virginia, a devastating fire ripped through the two-story home of the Sauter family in the middle of the night. Once the smoke cleared, there was absolutely no trace of the five young siblings who had been asleep upstairs when the blaze broke out. No bones, no clothing, nothing. We know that was an extremely abbreviated version, but don't worry. We're going to do a full deep dive on today's episode. To this day, nearly 80 years later, the internet has plenty of theories. But still, no one knows what really happened at the Sauter home on that fateful Christmas night. This is the mystery of the vanishing Sauter children. Lights out, campers. Oh man, the mountains called my number. If you grew up in a large town, we can almost guarantee that somewhere alongside a busy highway, there was one of those have-you-seen-me billboards of a missing child. If you were a child yourself, the reality of what that billboard meant would fortunately have shot right over your head. But if you were driving past it as a parent, you would likely have felt a familiar stab of grief and terror that no one can fully understand before becoming responsible for their own child. To this day, you may suddenly have the image of that missing child on the billboard pop into your mind, and you may wonder if anything ever became of that tragedy. For nearly 40 years, anyone driving along Route 16 in Fayetteville, West Virginia, encountered the solemn faces and piercing dark eyes of not one, but five missing children together on one billboard. 14-year-old Maurice Sauter, 12-year-old Martha Sauter, 9-year-old Louis, 8-year-old Jenny, and 5-year-old Betty. George Sauter and Jenny Cipriani met on the cusp of the roaring 1920s in Smithers, West Virginia. George, who was actually born Giorgio Sadu, had immigrated to the United States in 1908 when he was just 13 years old and quickly found work transporting water and supplies to laborers on the Pennsylvania railroads. This was grueling work, but George was smart and ambitious, and after several years of working the railroads on foot, he worked his way up to become a driver transporting supplies and eventually started his very own trucking company that hauled dirt for construction as well as freight and coal. One day, George walked into a local store called The Music Box in Smithers, and there he met the daughter of the store's owner, a beautiful young woman named Jenny Cipriani, whose family had also immigrated to the United States from Italy when Jenny was just three years old. In 1923, George and Jenny got married, settled down in a five-bedroom, two-story house in the Appalachian town of Fayetteville, West Virginia, and had their first baby, who they named John. Between 1923 and 1943, Jenny gave birth to ten children, and their family stood out among the many other Italian immigrant families in the community as, quote, one of the most respected middle-class families around, 
according to a local government official. George did very well with his trucking company, and the Sodders were well-liked and seemed to get along well with everyone in Fayetteville, with the exception that George had a lot of very strong opinions about everything, including politics, and particularly his disgust for Benito Mussolini and the rise of fascism. Seems reasonable. Mm -hmm. And George was not afraid to get into heated arguments about it with other immigrants in the community. On Christmas Eve, 1945, George and Jenny and nine of their ten children were enjoying the evening together at home. The only one who wasn't home was 21-year-old Joe Sauter, who had been discharged from the Army just a day before. Their oldest daughter, 19-year-old Marion, had come home that day from her job at the dime store in downtown Fayetteville and surprised her three youngest sisters, Martha, Jenny, and Betty, with new toys. Aww. That's her salary. <laughs> I know. Also... Can you be any more wholesome, 1945, the, the dime store job at Christmas Eve night? It, this feels already like it's an episode of Andy Griffith or something. Oh, it's just so pure. It makes your heart hurt. Mm. The little girls were so excited that they asked if they could stay up past their bedtime to keep playing. And Jenny said that that would be all right. The two oldest boys, 22-year-old John and 16-year-old George Jr., were worn out from spending the day working with their father, George, and were already fast asleep in their room that they shared upstairs. George had also turned in a while ago and was asleep in he and Jenny's bedroom on the first floor of the house. Jenny reminded 14-year-old Maurice and 9-year-old Louis, who had also stayed awake to play with Martha, Jenny, and Betty, not to forget that they still needed to put the cows up in the barn and feed the chickens. And then she scooped up two-year-old Sylvia to put her in the crib that was kept in her and George's bedroom and go to bed herself. At around 12.30 a.m., the shrill screech of the telephone jerked Jenny Sauter awake, and she rushed to the kitchen to answer the phone. When she picked it up, she could hear what sounded like laughter and glasses clinking in the background on the other line, and the voice of an unfamiliar woman asking for the name of someone who Jenny did not recognize. Jenny said to the woman that she must have the wrong number, but the woman just laughed strangely, so Jenny hung up the phone. Before she went back to bed, Jenny noticed that Marion had fallen asleep on the couch, but that the downstairs lights were all still on. The curtains hadn't been drawn, and the front door was still unlocked. And that was a little odd, because usually the children remembered to do those things if they stayed up later than their parents. But Jenny assumed they must have just forgotten in the excitement over their new toys. Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jeannie, and Betty weren't downstairs anymore with Marion, so she figured they must have already headed upstairs to the attic rooms where they all slept. So, like any mom would, she closed the curtains, switched off the downstairs lights, locked the front door, and went back to bed. Jenny had barely drifted off to sleep before she jerked awake again at 1 a.m., this time because she heard a sharp, loud bang against the roof of the house, followed by what sounded like something rolling down the slant of the roof, and then silence. 
Jenny listened closely in the darkness until she was satisfied that there wasn't any further commotion, and eventually she drifted off to sleep again. Another half hour went by, and for the third and last time that night, Jenny Sauter was awoken up, this time because of the unmistakable smell of smoke. To her horror, she could see it curling beneath the door of the bedroom, and she flew out of bed. Flames were licking up the walls around the fuse box and telephone line in the downstairs room that George used as an office, and it was spreading incredibly fast. Jenny snatched two-year-old Sylvia out of her crib and thrust her at Marion and instructed her to take Sylvia outside. George Jr. and John barely made it out of their shared bedroom and flew down the staircase before it was entirely engulfed in flames, singeing their hair on the way down. Oh my god. Ugh. George and Jenny screamed up the burning stairs, calling Maurice, Louis, Martha, Jenny, and Betty, who must surely be terrified and trapped in the two attic bedrooms they slept in on either side of the hallway, separated by a useless burning staircase. But they couldn't hear anything over the sound of the rapidly spreading fire, and the intense heat drove them out of the house. In a matter of minutes, the entire downstairs floor was completely engulfed in flames. A frantic George grabbed a bucket and raced the large water barrel that sat outside the family's home, but it was a completely useless, solid block of ice. More precious time ticked by as George and the two older boys desperately looked for the long ladder that the family kept propped against the side of the house so that they could try and reach a second-story window, but it was nowhere to be found on their property. George then tried unsuccessfully to scale the outside wall of the home himself while barefoot and smash out an upstairs window, but all he did was slice open his arm in the process. Marion sprinted to a neighbor's house to call the Fayetteville Fire Department, but the line that was supposed to be picked up by the operator was completely unresponsive. At the same time, unbeknownst to Marion, a passing driver saw the flames and raced to a nearby tavern to also call the fire department. But once again, there was either no response from the operator or the phone itself was just completely dead. In a last desperate attempt to get into an upstairs window of the house, George Sauter got the idea to drive his two work trucks along the side of the house and use them to climb up to the attic window, but they wouldn't start. With that last failed attempt, there was nothing more that could be done, and in a mere 45 minutes, the blaze had reduced the Sauter family home to a smoking pile of rubble. At 8 a.m., seven hours later, the Fayetteville Fire Department had the audacity to arrive. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for okay. nothing. Seven, seven hours later. <laughs> oh my God. I cannot. Like, oh, hey, heard there was a fire. Yeah. We're here. Apparently, the passing Good Samaritan, who had tried to call about the house fire on the tavern phone, had gotten so frustrated not being able to reach the operator that they actually drove into town and tracked down Fire Chief F.J. Morris, who then had to initiate the firefighter phone tree system, where one firefighter called the next firefighter, who called the next firefighter, and so on. Wow. Man. That seems very inefficient, but I guess you do what you got to do. I mean, 1945. Yeah, that's better true. Better than sending out Morse code or a pigeon. That's true. 
Oh. Due to staffing shortage, thanks to the war, even this took hours because there were so few working firefighters. Not only was the Fayetteville Fire Station itself just a mere two and a half miles from the Sauter home, Fire Chief F.J. Morris did not know how to even drive the fire... Shut the fuck up. Oh my god. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) The fire chief didn't know how to drive the fire truck. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. I'm lost of words. Was it because in his heyday of like fire chieftainship, they rode on horseback? I mean, that is the only excuse, sir. And even then get with the time. Like, what the actual fuck? So this, yeah, doesn't know how to drive the fire truck. And he had to wait for someone to show up who could operate it. So when the more or less useless fire department finally showed up, they were met with the surviving Sauter family members, George, Jenny, Marion, baby Sylvie, George Jr., and John, waiting beside the charred remains of their house and what they believed were surely going to be the remains of their five perished younger children. An incredibly distraught John Sauter would later tell investigators that when he and his brother George had awakened to his parents screaming up the stairs for them to get out and to wake their siblings, he'd ran and shook them awake. Mm. So he ran, shook them awake, and then they ran downstairs mm-hmm. themselves. Okay. Since at this point the fire department was not actually there to put out a fire, they began the only thing there was to do next sift through the ashes and recover the remains of the five children who didn't make it out so that they could be laid to rest. But around 10 a.m. after two hours of completing a basic search, the fire department told the grief-stricken George and Jenny that they hadn't found anything. But please, not to disturb the site of the fire so that the state fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough investigation the following day. Now, we do need to mention here, because this is important to note, some accounts of this story actually say that in this initial search through the ashes of the Sauter home, the fire department did actually find a few bone fragments and pieces of internal organs, but for whatever reason, chose not to tell this information to the family. It was actually reported later for NPR that four people had reported seeing remains in that initial search, including one of Jenny's brothers, who was one of the firefighters on the site. But if this is true, no remains were ever collected or included in any official records nor were any kind of official statements taken at the scene. The Sodders were told nothing was found, and George and Jenny Sodder always vehemently claimed that they were never given any indication that morning that remains of their children had been found. Mm. And wouldn't you think because Jenny's brother was Mm -hmm. there, And they would have just been fucking beside themselves. If he had found anything, he would have said something to them. 
because this was not some sort of like SWAT team swooping in doing things super by the book this was just like a bunch of telephone volunteer town like people yes coming and looking maybe they weren't the best at searching forensically through stuff but you know that if jenny's brother was there he would have been really looking i feel like he would have said something yes because as we will go on to see the intensity with which they cling to the belief that those children were never there if jenny's brother had actually found something i really believe he would have been like jenny i told you I found this, this, and this, and this, but yeah, nothing... I can't even see him like lying to no, no protect feelings. I can't. I don't. No, I don't know. Like just based off of what we know of the Sauter family's reputation, and it sounds like Jenny's family also had a very good reputation. That was her brother. I don't think he would have withheld that information from her. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but. Before people jump to being like, oh, well, they found remains and just didn't tell them. Mm -hmm. Clearly, those kids were all dead. There's a lot more layers to what appears to be the case. And we will go on to see that with the whole rest of this mess. So just bear with us. (laughs) So whether anything was found or not, Chief Morris suggested to the family that the lack of skeletal remains indicated to him that the fire had most likely just been burning hot enough to burn any trace of their bodies completely, and at the time, George and Jenny had no choice but to agree. Homie can't operate a fucking fire truck, but he's like, "Mm, Um, I think this is fine. In my expert opinion, shut up, Morris. They agreed to leave the site of the fire undisturbed like Chief Morris asked, but after four days... A grief-stricken George hopped in a bulldozer and bulldozed five feet of dirt over the entire site. And when asked, he said because he and Jenny were planning to turn it into a memorial garden for the lost children. The very next day, December 29th, a state police inspector combed through the rubble and declared the fire to be the result of faulty wiring. Death certificates for the five children were issued on December 30th, 1945, listing the children's cause of death to fire or suffocation. The local newspaper also weirdly contradicted itself when it came reporting on the fire. In one article, it stated that all of the children's bodies had been found, but then later in the same story reported that only part of one body was recovered. What? Okay. Were they just giving jobs out to, like, anybody because of the war? Apparently so. So we can write that off as shoddy reporting Mm. at the very least. And there's no creditable source Mm -mm. quoted, to my knowledge, anywhere that I could find. And so that was just pure fucking speculation and shame on the local newspaper for doing that. This very well may have had something to do with the wording of the children's death certificates, where in the burial, cremation, or removal section of the certificate... Burial is selected with the date December 27th, and the Sauter's home address is listed as the cemetery. So maybe they were like, oh, the public death certificate says Mm -hmm. they're burying them. They must have found something, mm -hmm. so they jumped to that conclusion. But if the cemetery, air quotes, oh God, is the home address, 
if I'm going to assume anything about that situation, it's just that they're like, we believe the kids died here and we're doing a memorial mm-hmm. service where they died. That's Ugh. very sad and dark. No. The Sodders were taken aback by this. If that was true, they had never been told that any remains of their children had ever been found. Understandably, George and Jenny Sodder were so destroyed with grief that they couldn't even bear to attend the funeral service of their children. Ugh, I would not either, Jenny. Ugh, I, I don't do cases with children and this one's really getting to me. Yeah, I know. Ugh. The only reason I'm even able to talk about it is because there's the... It's the vanishing solder children, mm-hmm. not that we absolutely 100% know they're dead solder children. So that's the what's, mystery to it. Yeah, that's what I'm clinging to. It is one of my favorite, mm-hmm. <laughs> one of my favorite stories. In the months following the fire, George and Jenny planted flowers across the plot where their house had once stood and went back through their memories with a fine tooth comb because they couldn't shake the nagging feeling in their stomachs that there were just too many unaccounted for and bizarre occurrences in the months leading up to the fire for them not to be connected to one another. For example, back in the fall of that same year, a strange man just appeared one day on their property and asked George if he'd had any hauling work available. The man had actually meandered around to the back of the house, pointed to two separate fuse boxes, and said, quote, This is going to cause a fire someday. George found that comment to be exceedingly strange because he had just had the wiring checked by the local power company, which had pronounced it to be in fine condition. And as they really thought about it, the Sodders realized, if the wiring was so bad in the house as to cause a devastating fire, why had all of the family's Christmas lights stayed on downstairs during the early stages of the fire? Shouldn't they have all already been out? Furthermore, remember the ladder that the Sodders always kept propped against the house, which George and the boys suddenly could not find when they so desperately needed it, it was found afterwards, several days later, at the bottom of an embankment about 75 feet away from the house. What? And it smells fishy. smells fishy. And when my initial thought was, well, why the fuck? 75 feet away is not that far. Why didn't they see it? But then I was like, oh, well... It was nighttime. It's dark. It was very dark. It's dark. They think it's in one spot and it's mm-hmm. not. Yeah. I mean, they've got everything going through their mind. It's chaotic. They're not There's... like, oh, hey, let's check around yeah. the ditch. So it was probably in grass. I mean, if those things are laying on the ground, mm-hmm. they can easily be hidden in grass. So it would have been very easy to be missed. And they're not going to think like, oh, let's look 75 feet away from the house. One, two. Yeah, it's going to be like propped against something. Right. So that it makes sense. It makes sense why they didn't see it. Hella fishy that it was gone when they needed Mm -hmm. it and was found days later. Jenny Sauter in particular began to really question the fire chief's opinion that after a short lived blaze, the two hours of searching, that there was absolutely no traces of their children's bones, flesh or clothing found. Because remember, like we said, there was no official reports indicating so. 
and Jeannie's own brother was on the scene assisting with the search, and this is a horribly gruesome detail, but we're sorry it's important to note that when human remains are destroyed in a fire, whatever would be left of the entrails a lot of times will turn a brilliant shade of red. Yeah. And that's what searchers will initially look for because the color red jumps out when everything else is turned black and gray. So Jenny began performing her own private experiments with fire by burning chicken bones, beef joints, and pork chop bones to see if she could get a fire hot enough herself to completely consume bone. And that is a mother right there. That is a mother. And that, she is our people for sure. Mm -hmm. That is something that is so incredibly dark that she's doing when you think about it because you know all she sees are her children's faces when she's doing that but you have to know yeah mom has to know you have to know and nobody else was fucking doing anything so of course Mm. she did the damn thing and was like i've got to figure this out for myself gosh good for her sad for her but good for her yeah but each time she was left with a heap of charred but still clearly recognizable animal bones she even consulted an employee at the crematorium who informed her that the human skeletal remains will still be present in the ash after bodies are burned in the incinerator for two full hours at a blazing 2,000 degrees. And remember, even though the solder house was destroyed in a mere 45 minutes and random household appliances like the solder's toaster had been able to be identified at a glance in the rubble and ash, as well as a piece of their tin roof. She also clung to an account of a similar house fire that she read about from around the same time that had killed an entire family of seven, and skeletal remains of all the victims were reported to have been found in that case. So again, why not her children's? Possibly most odd, though, was a telephone repairman who had come to the Sauter's property to inspect the state of the wiring told the family that their phone lines hadn't been burned up in the fire like they'd originally believed they had been cut Mm. by someone by who would have had to literally climb 14 feet up the telephone pole near the house and reach across two feet to make the cut Mm. that is incredibly sus that so cars won't start ladder 75 feet away phone line cut yeah Light's still on, but the wiring's faulty. I could almost be convinced that everything else was some sort of tragic, Mm -hmm. weird coincidence individually. Mm -hmm. But it's all of these things together that I think, and the Sodders came to that same conclusion. They're like, Mm -hmm. there are too many weird fucking things that happen in a short time frame Mm -hmm. that something is not adding up. And... To me, that cut phone line, that would have sent me over into, okay, you oh. will never not convince me that this was not deliberate in some form Just or fashion. because there's nothing else that would explain it. Like, no. Not explain that and all the other things. Yeah. And you don't just cut a line like that. You have to... Like, that doesn't happen because a bird is pecking at it or some shit. Right. Like, you have to actually, like I said, climb up there and intentionally sever it with a very sharp object. So, if the expert 
on the phone wires and electrical wires are saying like mm-hmm. this was cut it was not burned and burned right. things look very different than cut things then i have no reason to Granted, doubt that Jen, was this guy just plucked off the streets too and put I into mean, a you never wiring. know we have a lot of shoddy experts here <laughs> i will say but so far the only really sketch air quotes expert i have beef with as the fire chief captain I, morris yeah a little sauce captain morris you need to learn how to drive a fire truck as the fire captain goodness <laughs> i'm still not over that and we're not even done with all the weird yet in the following weeks a neighbor came forward to police and accused a man of coming onto the Sodder's property during the fire and stealing a block and tackle from one of the outbuildings on the property. And if you're like me and you're like, um, what the fuck is that? Sorry to my husband who's like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and don't worry, because we thought the same. And thank you to Little Gear Direct Online for explaining what this is. A block and tackle, sometimes known as a sheave block or rope pulley, is a useful pulley system that can be used to lift heavy weights or transfer forces in different directions. This handy system can be used in construction, in theaters, to move props around, or even in a gym. And it looks unassuming, but it can do a whole lot. And in this particular case, this, I guess, size and type of block and tackle was one that was typically used to remove engines out of cars. Mm -hmm. After this accusation, police apparently arrested this man, who admitted to both the theft and as being the one who had cut the phone line. But he said he had just thought he was cutting a power line. (laughs) What? What? I'm sorry. (sighs) At least these men weren't fighting the war for us. I mean, I guess. They were holding down the fort at home and cutting down the power lines. What in the hell? So he said, yes, I stole the block and tackle. Yes, I cut a line, but I meant to cut the power line and I didn't have anything to do with the fire. No charges were ever filed and no official police reports identifying the suspect even exist. So that's also very odd. And the man's reasons for why he would have wanted to cut any type of electrical lines to the solder house and steal a block and tackle from them has never been able to be explained. And Jenny would actually say years later in 1968 that If this man had managed to cut the power line, she fully believes that she and her husband, along with their other four children, would never have been able to make it out of that house alive. George believed that this same man who had stolen the block and tackle and cut the phone line could also very well have sabotaged his trucks so that they wouldn't start when he needed to move them during the fire. So all of this is very weird. There's a lot of things that don't make sense. This is my personal belief. And Caitlin, say what you think. Mm -hmm. I do believe that a neighbor saw some little shit bag rummaging around 
in their shed, maybe mm-hmm. trying to take advantage of the situation. And a block and tackle is something very specific. So I don't know, again, how that neighbor could have seen it was dark. Like, oh, he actually stole that. Right. You know, that that whole thing is just weird to me. But the fact that there was not ever an official arrest report and somebody being like, oh, yeah, they said they stole it. Oh, they said they cut this line. That just makes me think that this is more bullshit that's being just kind of sprinkled about in the local drinking holes by people like maybe a law enforcement being like oh yeah we arrested that guy mm-hmm. you know he he said he stole something and that he he cut a line but that it was the wrong one you know it's just kind of like I completely agree you know it's and i like i don't want to say my full opinion because we get further oh, into yeah. it later yeah but i agree that it's just bullshit that's being yeah. spewed to them like hey we got we took care of it we got rid of yeah. the problem yeah, like, this oh, isn't don't worry what about happened. It. Like, nobody sabotaged. Like, the house fire happened because uh-huh. of the house fire. Like, yeah. nobody did it deliberately. Like, yeah. Yeah. The nugget of truth that I cling to and all of that that I believe is true is that a neighbor saw somebody that shouldn't have been there dicking around mm-hmm. in one of their buildings. Whether I do or not agree they. With that. Yes. Whether or not they actually stole a block and tackle. And maybe they found it missing later mm-hmm. and that's why they're like oh that's what was stolen right not that it was just like the neighbor saw it mm-hmm. in their hand but like i don't even trust eyewitness yeah, accounts no like from then no but could there have been somebody on the property that had been fucking with stuff absolutely it would make sense with the ladder with the cars with mm-hmm. everything going on yeah it makes sense with the cut line absolutely around the same time another strange man approached george and tried very hard to get him to buy a family life insurance policy and became irate when george declined so irate in fact that he hissed at george <laughs> <laughs> He hissed at George, quote, your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. I'm sorry. Done. Case call. Like, it was what, him. What the actual fu- That's not just like a general threat. Like, oh, you better watch your back, bitch. That is, your house is going to go up in smoke. Your children are going to be destroyed. And he brings up his political indifferences. Yes. And it's like, your life is going to be ruined. I mean, all because he wouldn't buy a fucking life insurance policy. Which she's like, why do I need that? My kids are alive. Mm. Mm, yeah. Um, also sus. Because how many times have we seen where when family annihilations happen... There was a life insurance taken out very shortly before. And then they can be like, oh, let's zero in on the individual Mm -hmm. who took out that life insurance policy. But George was like, why the fuck would I do that? Like, no, thank you. (laughs) Like we've said before, it was no secret around town that George was outspoken about his dislike for the Italian dictator and would sometimes get into heated arguments with other members of the Fayetteville's Italian community. 
So at one time this happened, he didn't take the man's threat seriously. In the spring of 1946, a bus driver who had been passing through Fayetteville on Christmas Eve reported that he had seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house. Whoa. I just see Avatar Last Airbender. Yes. Great balls of fire. (laughs) A few months later, when the winter snow had melted, the family was visiting the site of the fire to tend to the garden they had planted over the building's foundation when three-year-old Sylvia found a small, dark green, hard, rubber ball-like object in the brush close to where the house once stood. George suddenly recalled what Jenny had said about hearing a loud thump followed by a rolling sound on the roof the night of the fire, and to him... The green rubber ball looked like it was a pineapple bomb hand grenade typically used in combat. Mm. If there was any doubt in the solder's mind that the fire hadn't been the result of faulty electrical wiring, that was it. And from then on, they were convinced that the fire had begun with the loud bang Jenny heard on the roof. I mean, same. Honestly. You have a bus driver. Here's something too that I think is pertinent to point out is that the people who are noticing things that they're coming Mm -hmm. forward and saying that they have no fucking reason to be lying about like the neighbor saying I Mm -hmm. saw somebody like creeping around the bus driver being like I saw somebody throwing balls of fire at your house things that make sense whereas the police are saying things that aren't adding up yes and it's the normal like town people that are just because it says the solders were beloved, they were respected, mm-hmm. being like, yeah, I noticed this weird thing that happened, so I'm going to say something about it. And people were doing good by speaking up. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like in a lot of these cases, people don't say anything right. until like 50 years later. And they're like, oh, I just didn't think to say anything. But no, this bus driver's like, yeah, I saw people throwing fireballs. <laughs> Balls of balls. I think that's what I just said. <laughs> balls, of balls. balls of balls. Balls upon balls of fire. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes sense. It's adding up. Yeah. Uh, they and many people also believe that the bizarre phone call that Jenny answered at 1230 in the morning with laughter and clinking glasses and the woman asking for a name Jenny didn't recognize was someone connected to the fire since all of the odd events that happened one right after the other. Mm. yeah this is such a mindfuck case yeah it is and i actually read somewhere that police oh again this is coming from police that police told the solders that they contacted that woman Mm -hmm. and asked her about it and that she confirmed to them that oh it was just a missed call that was just a wrong number maybe that is true Mm mm-hmm I mean, I can see on both hands being yeah, true. Maybe it's very much true. Maybe they just were saying more bullshit because, again, it was just something else that the Sodders were obsessing over. I could also see How where... How track back to her? I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't know, actually. How do hmm. you trace a... F- oh, maybe operator records? Oh, because the operator, there has to be I a physical so. person, so they would have known where the address came from. Okay. Oh, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. It would also be believable to me that a phone call could have been placed just a few minutes before the house went up 
in flames to make sure that they were home. You know? Like, I could believe either scenario mm -hmm. just as easily. I agree. So now after all of that, y'all are probably scratching your heads. Mm -hmm. We're going to give you some more things to mull over. We need to talk about the sightings of the Sodder children that happened after the fire. Yes, you heard that right. The multiple sightings of the five Sodder children who had been declared deceased on Christmas Day. According to an article written by Karen Abbott for Smithsonian Magazine, a woman claimed to have seen the missing children peering from a passing car while the fire was in progress. Another woman operating a tourist stop and diner between Fayetteville and Charleston, some 50 miles to the west, came forward and said that she personally saw the children the morning after the fire. She literally told the police, quote, I served them breakfast, and there was a car with a Florida license plate at the tourist court, too. Yet another woman at a hotel in Charleston, West Virginia, had seen the children's photos in a newspaper and said she recognized four of the five children a week after the fire. She said, quote, The children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction, she said in a statement. Quote, I do not remember the exact date, However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a very hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more, and they left early the next morning. Quote, what? What? The <laughs> actual fuck. Okay. But don't worry, we're not done with the bombshells. Remember when we said that John Sodder had told police in that initial interview right after the fire that he had run and physically shook his younger siblings to wake them up before fleeing down the stairs? Well, later, he recanted that and said that wasn't exactly true. In the new version of events, he said that in the chaos of waking up and his parents screaming at him, flames shooting i mean i can't even imagine the the horror and the mm -hmm. terror and the adrenaline he said that he actually had not seen or touched his siblings he didn't shake them awake he'd only yelled in the direction of their bedrooms to wake them up without ever really laying eyes on them before he had to make a run for it So, which version is the true version? And that makes sense to me because when he said that he ran and touched them, I was like, there's no way you ran up there, shook them awake, 
and then just ran without them. Like, you didn't yeah. yell at them like, to help them get up. Like, you would have grabbed them by the scruff of yeah. the neck and thrown them down the stairs. I mean... But I understand, like you just said, in the chaos of it all, yeah. I understand him being mm-hmm. confused. Or yeah. even, not even just being confused, but telling his parents, I did touch them. I shook yeah. them awake. Yeah. Like, to reassure them. Yeah, because his parents were probably like, did you wake them up? Did mm-hmm. you wake them up? And he's probably like, yeah, 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 I did. Because they were screaming at those boys. Mm-hmm to the two oh my gosh what are their names john Uh, john and george jr yeah yes they were screaming at them to go wake up the other siblings Mm -hmm. and then to come downstairs because from my understanding of the way the house was laid out it was like jenny and george and baby sylvia they were all downstairs Mm -hmm. upstairs was where all of the children slept and so there was three bedrooms upstairs two of them were like smaller attic rooms Mm -hmm. and that was where the five younger children slept and then the two older boys had the uh the bedroom that was closest to the stairs Mm -hmm. so they could hear the parents yelling they woke up and then uh were instructed to go wake up the other siblings also, and I don't know if it is mentioned or not, but with the um, pineapple bomb being mentioned oh yeah, and everything, it seems like everything started higher up mm. versus lower down mm. and going up. You know what I mean? Like the fire yeah. started yeah. at the top. Yep. And it would make sense. Which is probably what made it burn as quick as it did. Yes. And it would make sense to me that I'm not a fucking wire expert i don't know how that shit works but when jenny woke up and saw the first flames that are talked about like in every article i read they were in the office in the downstairs oh yeah yeah Yeah. but they were concentrated but that's what they see yes they were concentrated though around the phone and around the fuse box Well, I wonder if there was a window there that something could have gone through. Yes, but the way that if there had been some sort of like fire that could have started that was like in the electrical Mm -hmm. circuit system that even could have started up on the roof Mm -hmm. and then traveled down to that office. Somebody smarter, please explain, but... Either way, I do believe that the fire began, events related Mm -hmm. to the fire at least began with that bang on the roof. Yes. And something, the math wasn't mathing there. And the fire did, if it had begun upstairs, there's no way that the boys would have gotten out because it was going up the staircase yeah and they had that window of time to run down but see that's why i was like did they make it down because the like they were running away from the fire like the fire was like oh you mean that you know it was, what i mean that it was already like consuming the maybe upstairs. i'm just like concentrating on this fire too much like to play into my yeah. opinion but yeah. i don't know I think that... But I agree with what you're saying. I think that even if... So it very 
well could have started on the roof, mm-hmm. but usually but travel, like, traveled down mm-hmm. on like a corner of the house. And usually those things like the phones mm-hmm. and shit were in the corners of the house because they would run the wires I down. Think what's making me second guess it is mm-hmm. how they said the Christmas lights were still on downstairs. Yeah. So I'm oh, like, yeah, yeah. did the electrical, like, was that compromised mm. in the early stages yeah. of the fire or yeah i don't know how it fucking works but i then, know our barn burnt down yeah. and some chickens roasted yeah i don't know anything else about fire and then the front door was unlocked so somebody yes. could have come in the front door set a fire in the downstairs and slipped out which that you makes know? sense too because the kids had chores to do mm-hmm. and i could see them forgetting to lock the door i mean yeah they could have tried to start a fire by throwing something at the roof Mm -hmm. and it didn't take right because and then it was like 30 minutes later that she woke up again and And then they were like fuck we're trying to set this house on fire Mm -hmm. it's not working we've got to go in set it from the inside Hmm. if people were throwing fireballs Mm -hmm. at the roof which was made of tin Mm -hmm. so is going to be flame resistant right so many questions and y'all are getting to hear us work through them all because we know you probably have questions too so with this revelation george and jenny sauter were utterly convinced that their five missing children must still be alive and publicly offered a five thousand dollar award for information leading to the whereabouts of even just one of their beloved children in 1947, the Sauters personally sent a letter about the case to the FBI and received the following reply from J. Edgar Hoover. Quote, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigation jurisdiction of this borough. Unquote. However, Hoover's agents did say that they would assist if they could get permission from the local authorities, which gave the Sauters a shred of hope initially. But it's a pissing game. The Fayetteville Police and Fire Departments declined the FBI's offers to aid them in further investigating the disappearance of the children. As we will go on to see, this would not be the only sus-as-fuck thing the Fayetteville law enforcement would do. Uh, No. Hmm. Determined to keep the investigation moving, in 1947, the Sodders hired a private investigator to help them, named C.C. Tinsley. Incredibly, Tinsley discovered that the strange insurance salesman, remember that one that got pissed off and made the very specific threat to George about his house burning down and his kids being destroyed, was actually a member of the coroner's jury that was held the day after the fire, which deemed its cause to be an accident. Tinsley also discovered a curious story from a Fayetteville minister about our buddy Fire Chief F.J. Morris, the one that didn't know how to drive his fire truck. Although Chief Morris had initially told the Sodders that no human remains were found, he supposedly had confided in other people around town that he'd actually discovered, quote, a heart in the ashes. Apparently, F.J. Morris had hidden this human heart inside a fucking dynamite box and buried it at the scene. So, Tinsley persuaded good old Chief Morris 
to show him the spot where he buried this heart. And together, the two of them found and dug up the box from the burnt foundation and took it straight to a local funeral director, who, after poking and prodding at this heart, concluded that it was beef liver that had never been touched by a fire. Pause so I can collect myself. Soon afterward, the Sodders heard rumors in town that Chief Morrison had also been telling people he'd never actually found anything to begin with and that he had just buried the beef liver in the rubble in the hopes that the Sodders would find it and it would finally satisfy them enough so that they would stop pestering them about the investigation. What? Because if I was digging around and found a fucking box with what I would think is like my child's heart, like, that would open so many cans of worms. A box. What? Like, what the actual fuck? <laughs> You put it in a box. This guy, like we said before, not the brightest French fry also, in the box. Like, <laughs> a child human heart mm -hmm. versus a fucking cow liver. Beef liver, yeah. That's not even the same. Not. Yeah. <sighs> this is just beyond. Beyond. Respectful. It's. It's so disrespectful to this poor fucking family. I cannot. It's disgusting. Good for C.C. Tinsley. I'm liking <laughs> Tinsley. Oh. Over the next few years, the tips and leads continued keeping the Sodders clinging to hope. George saw a newspaper photo of schoolchildren in New York City and was convinced that one of them was his daughter, Betty. He drove to Manhattan in search of the child, but her parents refused to speak to him. <sighs> Oh. In August 1949, the Sodders decided to mount a new search at the fire scene and brought in Washington, D.C. pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter. The excavation was thorough and it uncovered several small objects, damaged coins, a partially burned dictionary, and several shards of vertebrae. Hunter sent these shards to the Smithsonian Institution for examination, which then issued the following report. Quote, the human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been around 16 or 17 years. The top limit of age should be about 22 since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. On this basis, the bones show greater skeletal maturation than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy who was the oldest missing solder child. It is, however, possible, although not probable, for a boy 14 and a half years old to show 16 to 17 maturation. Even more compelling, the vertebrae also showed no evidence that they had ever been exposed to fire, and the report said, quote, It is very strange that no other bones were found in the allegedly careful evacuation of the basement of the house. Noting that the house reportedly burned for only about half an hour or so, it said that, quote, one would expect to find the full skeletons of five children rather than only four vertebrae. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. 
The source of these bones, the report concluded, were most likely from the supply of dirt that George used to fill in the basement to create the memorial for his children. That makes a lot more sense because he brought in a lot of dirt. A lot of dirt. And they live on a farm. And they live on a farm. And he moved dirt and shit for his job. Mm -hmm. So it is possible, it's very possible that that dirt didn't even come from the farm. He could have had it supply from who knows where. Even if it did come from the farm, people, we see them all the time mm-hmm. out here family burial plots oh yeah are all over the place on these like farm properties mm-hmm. so that does not surprise me at all that the body of someone or like a shard from a long passed away person I mean, but even just virginia think of like yeah. the war oh my gosh like, yeah how many bodies yeah and when i first read that you're like oh, that's could be kind of damning. That is actually confirmed human vertebrae mm-hmm. found in that spot. But when they're like, it was never exposed to fire. And it would have had to have been burned so absolutely that all that was left of all fucking five of those kids was like four shards. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's enough again susness for me to be like i i'm not convinced that that belonged to any of the solder children in 1967 the solders reportedly received a letter from a woman in houston who said she encountered lewis and his brother maurice at a bar where lewis confessed that they were the missing solder brothers sylvia's husband grover paxton actually drove George there and met with the men, but they denied they were his sons. Grover Paxton would actually later tell the Charleston Gazette Mail that George always believed that those really may have been his boys. Oh my God. That's so sad. Mm, That hurts my heart. Because you know, like, as a parent, I think you would just have a knowing. Then in 1968, so now we're more than 20 years after the fire, Jenny Sauter went to the mailbox and found an envelope addressed only to her. It was postmarked in Kentucky, but had no return address. Inside the letter was a photograph of a man in his mid-20s. On its flip side, there was a weird handwritten note that read, quote, Lewis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, I-L-I-L boys, period, followed by the digits A90132 or 35. The Sodders were convinced that the boy in the photograph was their son, but they and other investigators could not decipher the message. Lewis did not have a brother named Frank, but his mother, Jenny, did. In fact, at one point, 
the Sodders had actually accused a man named Frank Cipriani of kidnapping the children and raising them as their own in Florida. The woman who claimed to have seen the children on Christmas morning had actually noticed the car had a Florida license plate, and Cipriani lived in the area where other witnesses said they saw the children. And according to Cipriani's obituary, one of his three sons was listed as being named Frank. It's also interesting to note that while the I-L-I-L boys phrase had many sleuths stumped, many have pointed out that the five digits in A90132 or 35 could represent postal codes. 90135, for example, can be found in the city of Palermo, the capital of the Italian island of Sicily. With the arrival of this photo and its obvious striking similarities to their young son, the dark curly hair, the dark brown eyes, and the same straight, strong nose, and possibly most notably, the same upward tilt of the left eyebrow that they knew little Lewis to have. Once again, George and Jenny hired a private detective and sent him to Kentucky to get to the bottom of this bizarre letter. But this private detective was never heard from again. What is happening? What is happening? I'm so confused. Also, y'all can Google. We'll uh, put these on the Instagram post. Y'all can Google these. I, I'm like copy-paste. This little boy is the same older man. Like He cute. He is a real cutie. He's handsome. The similarities are incredibly, incredibly striking. And the little eyebrow thing, I can totally see it. The nose. I always remember people like noses are very distinguishing to me because I feel like those always are very genetic Mm -hmm. and I'll be creepy and like really stare at noses of like people in our family because I'll be like Uh oh my god they have the exact same nose as this person Mm -hmm. in the family and I don't know what Mm -hmm. it is about noses those that's just a very like genetically defining feature that I notice Mm -hmm. between family members and I am not a fucking expert and this is just an old black and white photo but I'm just want I want to believe that it's him I I just need to believe that it's him it's it and I know people fake things yeah because people are fucked up in the head yeah but like it would it the timing it's just weird that like yeah the timing, the Italian postal code, mm-hmm. yep. um, the whole Florida family thing. I don't yeah. oh The lack of return address, which I mean. Mm-hmm. Which to me, it's like somebody is taunting them. Yeah. Taunting them or wanting to be like the danger of revealing where he actually is is too real mm-hmm. then, but it's a way of just getting something to them. I don't know. I don't know. But again, the 
it's a literal fucking photograph and like how many of these cases where there's missing kids for 40 years do they ever see another picture that looks that closely like them again right it just doesn't happen and even in the time period that it's happening it's not like facebook or instagram where Mm -hmm. we have so many photos everywhere and people all look the same now (laughs) everybody has the same lip injections everybody's got the same filter on like it's gosh man it's just another bizarre thing another piece to this puzzle yep the Sodders were terrified that if they publish a letter or the name of the town on the postmark that they might cause harm to their son so instead they updated the billboard to include the updated image of lewis and hung an enlarged version of the photo over their fireplace they knew that they were aging themselves and they knew that time was running out to get answers Sadly, George Sauter passed away less than a year later, still hoping for a break in the case. Jenny Sauter never recovered from her grief. She put up a tall fence around her property, then began adding rooms to her home, building layer after layer between her and the outside. From the day of the fire, she wore black exclusively as a sign of mourning and continued to do so until her own death in 1989. Nearly 40 years after it was up, the billboard with the faces of little Maurice, Martha, Lewis, Jenny, and Betty finally came down. The living Sauter children and grandchildren never gave up looking, and after all these years, these are the most prevalent theories as to what could have possibly happened that Christmas Eve. 1. The local mafia had tried to recruit George Sauter, and he declined. What do you think about that? I... You think that's... Could have happened? The mafia is like... One of my biggest, Mm. like, opinions with this case. Yeah. Two, the local mafia tried to extort money from George, but he refused. Mm, I could also see that. Three, the children were kidnapped by someone they knew, someone who burst into the unlocked front door, told them about the fire, and offered to take them someplace safe. Mm. Four, they never actually survived the fire. Because if they had, and if they lived for decades, if it really was Lewis in that photograph, they failed to contact their parents only because they wanted to protect them. It's also interesting to note here that a major factor pointing towards the children not being in the home when it caught on fire was a lack of bones after a 45-minute blaze. But that's not technically accurate. The house was definitely razed to the ground in just 45 minutes. But remember, the fire department didn't show up for seven hours and the solders didn't put out the flames the house may no longer have been a fireball but the rubble was still incredibly hot and burning for hours following the home's collapse i do want to talk about this because there are a lot of really intense bloggers out there that are like as horrible and tragic and weird as all the things surrounding this it really comes back down to that the Sodders were just clinging to anything they could, that most likely the children actually did die in the fire, and that that 45 minutes is kind of misrepresenting of what actually occurred with the process of the blaze. And the 45 minutes is just the amount of time it took the house to basically collapse Mm -hmm. and 
turn into a pile of rubble, but it was still burning for hours. However, I am going to say what I know we've already said and that still there wasn't anything found other than that one was it four it wasn't even mm-hmm. whole vertebrae it was shards of vertebrae mm-hmm. that were declared by the fucking smithsonian pathologists who never have been exposed to fire so even if that fire had been burning hot enough i don't believe it would have burnt hot enough to completely get rid of all trace of them because it was also releasing up into the air. Right. It was not in an enclosed and there was crematorium. Five children. Five. Not just one. Yeah. So there's five bodies yes. that just completely, completely yes. disappeared. And it wasn't hot enough to melt the appliances mm-hmm. that they could still recognize as being like their toaster, the, toaster the, the whatever, oven. probably an like whatever. So that I get that people want to be like, ah, oh, the poor grieving family. They probably and I get actually that. did die, die in there. It was burning a lot longer. That still doesn't have me convinced. No, I don't believe. I get it. I respect it. Yes. But I don't believe that that's what happened. No, I don't. Sylvia Sauter was the longest surviving Sauter sibling. But sadly, she passed away in 2021 at the age of 79. According to those who knew her, Sylvia's life was rich and marked by unbounded love. She never believed that her siblings perished in the fire. And that's really where we are today. No closer to answers than in 1945. But, because, you know, Caitlin and I like to like to give you our opinion we can't leave you guys without talking about something or rather some hand specifically the black hand according to an article written by norman julian for the west virginia encyclopedia the black hand was the name and symbol of an underworld society of italian immigrants that during the first decades of the 20th century, sought to extort money from other Italian immigrants. Thriving in Sicily in the late 19th century, the Black Hand came to the New World as part of the Great Migration to America's mines and factories. Soon, the mysterious society operated in, ding ding ding, West Virginia. okay but let's make a little note here before i go on what was george sauter doing for work he was caught up in the mine and factory system hauling stuff with trucks Mm -hmm. so he was a part of that industrial world Mm -hmm. in west virginia he was an italian immigrant He immigrated to the U.S. when he was 13. He did not talk about his life prior to that. That was commonly known with him, was that he was very tight-lipped about it. Mm. 
he actually came to Ellis Island with his brother, who was an older teenager. His brother dropped him off, basically made sure he made it through the door, turned right back around, left, went back to Italy. He never heard from him again. Oh, gosh. So, knowing that, the Black Hand intimidated their victims by sending threatening letters accompanied by crude drawings of a hand painted black. Italians are the largest ethnic group in West Virginia, and their businessmen were the most frequent targets. Sometimes, the Black Hand sought to exploit miners. Some victims refused to pay, fought back, and were left alone. Trials at several county courthouses eventually led to the eradication of this group. On February 11, 1923, eight members of the Black Hand were arrested in Harrison County, West Virginia. Their successful prosecution constituted one of the most famous trials in Clarksburg, the county seat. The trial capped a three-year period when several mysterious murders in the county involved alleged gangland vendettas. And I do want to point out here that, yes, I know 1923 is much before 1945, but it was in 1922, the 40s, Mm -hmm. that George Sauter was very active as a businessman in the community. That was when he and Jenny met, where they had children. So the Black Hand was active and operating mm-hmm. in Harrison County in West Virginia when George Sauter would have been working age and responsible for a lot of right. things. And again, outwardly spoken about his political opinions. Yes. And just because eight members of the Black Hand were arrested and that led to its dissolving eventually, it didn't just go poof Mm -hmm. overnight. They're much, much smarter than that. So, Caitlin, now that we know this about the Black Hand, I want to propose to you and hear your thoughts on something that I could not find ever spoken about. In, I read so many articles and watched every video available on Mm -hmm. this case. Maybe I just missed it, and I don't want to take credit if this is not my original thought, but it's original to me. (laughs) The very beginning, when all of this started on Christmas night, Mm -hmm. the big debate is, were the Sauter children upstairs or what like how the fuck did they get taken out of the house Mm -hmm. i think they left the house of their own free will oh because their mom said before you go to bed don't forget to put the cows and the chickens away for Mm -hmm. the night they were down there with their older sister who fell asleep on the couch Mm -hmm. those two older boys were the ones responsible for putting the cows and the chickens away outside you know that those three little girls were like oh let us come with you like let's go let's go Mm -hmm. let's go out you know and they were probably like oh like fucking Fine. fine so they went outside after the parents were asleep mm-hmm. after marion fell asleep 
and they were like oh we gotta go do that before we go to bed i don't think they ever came back in the house okay i get what you're i was like no nah, they didn't just walk up and leave on their own no i, get I what think you're they were taken and i completely agree i don't yeah. think they ever made it back upstairs because mm-hmm. it would not make sense yep. that they would make it back upstairs yep. and that makes sense for the door being yep. unlocked and the lights will be yep. on I also don't know that I believe they were ever meant to be taken. I do believe that that house Mm -hmm. was meant to be set on fire with Mm -hmm. them all inside. And kill them. And kill them. I think that it was poorly planned by idiots and that it went wrong. And the children happened upon Mm -hmm. maybe somebody dicking around outside like somebody trying to cut the power line, right. trying to mess with the car, trying to make it oh. impossible for them to, you know, th- and the they were like, fuck, these kids are now collateral damage, mm-hmm. saw that opportunity and took them because they had to. So they either, that makes sense. they either took them and they died very shortly after somewhere that mm-hmm. we never know where they actually are or they were taken and scattered about to the four winds and Mm -hmm. because they were like oh because maybe they did it again i'm speculating but maybe they never meant to actually like kill the solders and it was just to be a like like, a threat a threat and well and that would make sense to me because there's no other i mean quote-unquote documented cases of other families being mm-hmm. like whole families being murdered yeah in that like in the same manner yep exactly or other children going missing which makes sense that it wasn't their original plan to take yep. the children yep yep but i firmly believe that they did not die in the fire i agree i i cannot be convinced that they died in the fire but yeah them leaving the house to do their chores mm-hmm and getting snatched then mm-hmm. and there. Yep. And it would have been very late at night. It would have been in that window where people would have already been dicking around the house. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense because it does not make sense to me that somebody could have come into the front door, gone all the way up mm-hmm. to the attic, know where to go to get the children mm-hmm. that they wanted, mm-hmm. kidnap yep. five kids, yeah, no. five kids, bring them downstairs. With nobody hearing anything. And then it doesn't yeah. make sense for... Like, it makes no sense mm-hmm. how they would get five children from an attic and start a fire. And Yeah, but left the other two older ones, and it would have been dark. So how would they have known that mm-hmm. the the other two no, were... No, I completely you know, agree with just what you're so, saying. It's, that is the only thing that makes the most logical sense. And it tracks with the woman who came forward to police saying, I saw them in a car. Mm-hmm. I saw their faces peering out the window of a car as the fire was burning, leaving. So, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Let us know what you think about that one, guys. Yeah, that's a, that's one that we need to do a poll on oh, Spotify. Because yes, I want to know. Because, mm-hmm. okay, I know y'all know that we think an owl owl is the killer mm-hmm. in the Peterson case. Okay, but bitch, listen, red-handed... Oh, did, they, we did they just do it? At their feet. They did. They were like, everyone, you're going to think we're crazy, but the owl did it. The owl the did owl it. The owl did it. And I was like, fuck yes. <laughs> we're not They're crazy. team owl. 
Because it's the feathers. It's it, the the feathers that were embedded in her hand. All of the forensics. Then, fucking Dwayne Deaver. We are gonna t- yeah, just listen to the and then owl. This one, there's no. It makes no sense that there's no bones. Mm-hmm. There's nothing because yeah. even even yeah. when somebody is um, cremated, there's mm-hmm. still chunks left, aren't there? Yes. Yeah. That's commonly known, and they have. I'm sorry, not to be gross, but they have to like filter them out Mm -hmm. and then they discard of them. You don't always get your hip bone. Yeah. You don't always get your, (laughs) all your vertebrae intact. Uh, And I also do want to point out the only other thing that people will say is that they're like, okay, the search that was conducted by them in that first day after the fire Mm -hmm. was fucking worthless like completely two hours they probably just walked through and poked around at some shit but again that wasn't a big house that was just like a standard little like you know two-story farmhouse i'm sure they didn't live extravagantly there wasn't like so many things they had to sift through also like the attic would be on top of it all yeah like that is very good point. So it wouldn't have yes. been buried. Yes. And again, I firmly mm-hmm. believe that Jenny's brother would have told her, mm-hmm. if not like right away, if he yeah. was holding on to it, mm-hmm. I feel like he would have eventually told her as to not let her like have wistful, wishful yep. thinking. Yeah. And who is it that historically gets pressure put on them to control a narrative or to plant things about what happened it's law enforcement having the screws put to them by people who have more power than law enforcement if you want to go with the mafia route Mm -hmm. black hand yeah it makes sense that they would have people within those ranks underneath their belt yep and the fire chief was either just a genuine dipshit or there was something much more nefarious going on also, I want to know why the operate operating that, like why yes. the the fire department was not getting those calls yes. from anybody. Why their phone was and that was a, another thing too. Their phone line was cut, so it was like they were making sure that even if they could have gotten to the phone to call nine one one, they wouldn't have. But been even able the guy to. at the tavern couldn't get through. It like yeah. there's so many things. Like, that, like there was a collective like from this window of time in this zip code you do not respond to a call Mm. does it sound like something the mafia would do i've watched the sopranos and yes it does (laughs) and the last little thing i will say because i know that we have uh middle-aged men that listen to this show thank you guys we love you. you and now i'm gonna drop a sopranos easter egg for all of the older men that I know love the Sopranos as much as I do in that show Uncle June who is one of the patriarchs of the mafia family ends up in a nursing home and when he's in the nursing home he is sitting with all the old people and they start singing songs together while someone plays on the piano and there's a scene where they start to play country roads take me home And he is like sitting there crying and deeply moved as they're singing about West Virginia. And 
Uncle June and the mob guys, they are not country music people. That is like the opposite of what they're into. So you're like, why the fuck is he, is his dementia like now that bad? But then I was like, wait, no. He had a moment of immense clarity where he was crying for his people and the old country because they're talking about West Virginia. And West Virginia was where the largest Mm. immigrant, Italian immigrant community was and the one of the largest mafia presence in North America at the time and Uncle June in the Sopranos uh-huh. is he would have been a young man he was like in his heyday okay. in that time period so so Uncle June took the kids so that Uncle June did it <laughs> that's what I'm gathering from this but I was like oh my god they that had to be purposeful because there's no other reason for them to make that big of a deal that he gets emotional over singing mm-hmm. a song about West Virginia when there's no other country references ever in that show. So I was just like, <gasps> by golly, I got it. By George. Uncle June did it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, guys. Yeah. Did Uncle June do it? <laughs> was it Uncle June? <laughs> Black Hand, you think they did die. We want to know what you guys yes, think. Yes, we do. Please tell us. We want to know if you guys think we're right. Mm-hmm. Yep, or if we're just clinging to, I don't know. I don't. F- As moms, you just, if there's any hope that your kids are alive, you're oh, you're yeah. going to cling to that for forever. And my heart was shattered for all of them, but Jenny especially, I just, mm-hmm. <sighs> fuck. But yeah, hope you guys have a Merry Christmas. Um, make sure all your fire code things in your house are up to date mm-hmm. and uh anything <laughs> else follow us on instagram at camping is canceled and tiktok at camping is canceled send us all of your recommendations and personal stories to camping is canceled at gmail.com check out our website all our affiliate links are on there for little fun things you might want to have. Good stocking stuffers. Yes, yes. Good personal protection gear for stocking stuffers. I might have ordered a few things for myself that I'll be putting <laughs> in my own stocking. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget to click and look through our Turning Hearts affiliate link. Yes. Um, also a good Christmas present. Yes, yes. All of that information is on our website and at you camping can, is canceled. Camping is canceled. Com. Com. How many times can we say a camping is canceled? Camping is canceled. All right, guys, we'll catch you back. I don't know what case we're. Oh, yes, I do know what case we're doing next. We're going to be re releasing our very first two parter because our audio quality was a little bit shit and our nervousness made our telling of the story Mm -hmm. not up to the standards that we would like it to be so we're going to be re-releasing the jennifer levin two-parter for you guys and i hope that our new listeners really enjoy it and that our people who have been here since day one are able to appreciate it yes re-dig into that story and be like oh look at them Mm -hmm. they've They've grown. They've blossomed. (laughs) I hate that word. (laughs) 
Anywho. Anywho, thanks for listening. Hope you have a Merry Christmas, everyone. Bye. Bye.